Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged. We've had a busy few weeks here at Digital Health with our Autumn Leadership Summit held in Birmingham at the beginning of the month. It was our first in-person event since the pandemic hit, so it was really nice to see everyone in person again after such a long time. There was so much discussed about the future of digital leadership, the importance of including the workforce in digitization plans, and also the role ICSs are going to play. I also got to meet some of our listeners, which was really, really great because I'm often just sat here with a microphone and a laptop wondering who is listening and what they actually think of the podcast. So that was an added bonus. All in all, it was just really great to see people and not be staring at a computer screen all day. There's also been a fair bit of news on the agenda as well. One of those things is reports of a national deal for an epic electronic patient record in England. For those of you who are avid readers of our site, you'd have noticed we published a feature on that recently, which has sparked some fairly big discussions among colleagues and also those working in the industry. Now, it's important to say at the moment that it is still speculation, but it does ring slightly similar to the National Programme for IT, which was obviously abandoned 10 years ago. So we thought we'd have a further discussion about this on the podcast, where we can talk about what's been speculated and what it means for the NHS. Joining me today for our first news team podcast in a really long time are Hannah Crouch, Digital Health Editor, and John Hoaxmer, Digital Health Editor-in-Chief. Hi, guys. How are you doing? I actually cannot remember the last time you were on the podcast. I'm really excited you're back on here with me. I don't know who wants to talk first. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. It's been a while. Um, I think it's always good to to leave the listeners hanging and for them to cherish what I'm saying. They don't, I don't want them to get bored of me or of my... <laughs> of my comments so yeah. I think um less is more I think with me. So, <laughs> rationing all the good stuff yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I have to store it all up for a few months and then I just come in and I'm like bam here's some knowledge so, yeah. as in I said case, less is more in my case Andrew it's just because you haven't invited me oh. <laughs> now that now the public know that I'm not inviting you on <laughs> I mean I've just been very busy John you know I've had a high demand from other people very important I know yes now just <laughs> my celebs only I get it yeah yeah, yeah. Did, I mean your words John not mine your words <laughs> but I am really glad that you're you're both back on the podcast with me because I think there's no better no better team to discuss uh, the feature that we published last week and that is obviously speculation of a national deal with Epic um so John, this was actually your feature, so I'm just going to hand over to you to start with to talk about, you know, what you've actually heard and what this could mean for the NHS. What what are the rumours so far? Yeah, okay. Well, I think, first of all, um, that word speculation, very important. So there is a world of difference between a news piece, which is carefully sourced and um, is our um, absolute best take on what's happening and... um, and as we stood out the way, and something which is much more a speculative piece based on um, rumours swirling around. And the um, piece we're talking about falls very much in, in the latter category. Um, but it runs roughly like this. Um, Tim Ferriss, new guy, director of innovation at, um, at NHS England Improvement, um, is, has just joined. He's come from um, Massachusetts General um, and in meetings during the summer, um, he is um, reported to have said, wouldn't it be a splendid thing if more NHS hospitals had um, the EPIC EMR system? 
Um, and that is the same system that um, he was familiar with a Massachusetts general um, and um, like many others, um, thinks very highly of. Um, so there'd been certainly kind of reports that he was a big fan and have been suggesting that, um, that more NHS trusts would benefit from it if they could get hold of it. Um, and then at a, an event two weeks ago at HET, um, there was a what appeared to be a confirmation that there'd been some discussions, high-level discussions between NHS England um, and um, EPIC. Um, as to what those discussions were, no indication. Um, when I could have put a question to the um, press team, they gave a very kind of um, straight answer, um, which you know neither confirmed nor denied, but just said it's normal to speak to suppliers, so fairly anodyne. Um, but I think for a lot of people, um, the fact that um, Epic has built up a kind of market position um, in a relatively short space of time, it's only 2014 that they had their first implementation at Cambridge. Um, they've since won some major London trusts. They've had go lives at places like Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, University College London. Um, there's um, big ones going with um, guys in St. Thomas's, possibly with Kings and a few others um, happening as well. Manchester's going that route. Um, they've done remarkably well. So I think um, for a lot of people with long memories, um, just the suggestion of national kind of um, discussions with a supplier um, evokes memories of the national program for IT, and that didn't really work out so well. Um, and also, Epic is a kind of a a kind of a kind of like strange company. They are different. They are privately owned. Um, their founder is um, a bit of an industry legend, Judy Faulkner. Um, and um, they have a different way of doing things, you know, that they, they kind of make sure that their customers commit to all kinds of investment in infrastructure and process that others don't do. I think that's why there's been so much interest. Um, and then the last piece I'd add to it um, is that I think it does kind of feed into kind of concerns that a lot of people have is that we've got a market for hospital kind of um, EPR systems that's beginning to look a bit like a um, monopoly with a handful of suppliers um, and choice and uh, possibly innovation beginning to look a bit thin in supply. Hmm. Well, you've kind of covered a lot of the things that I wanted to talk about on the whole podcast, John. So that might be the quickest episode we've ever recorded. Well, can you, can you break it down then, rather than me. Yeah. No, no, I, I am joking. That like that, I think there's a. It's worth delving into a few things, and I think it was good that you mentioned them at the beginning, because um, obviously there are quite a few elements to this. So I think the first place to start is if this was to happen. What do you guys think a national procurement of EPIC would actually mean for the NHS? What do you think it would look like? My first question when I, you know, when I read your feature, John, was whether or not that means that hospitals that already have certain systems in place, do they have to move on to EPIC or do they have to like see out their contract and then move to EPIC? There's, I think there's, I don't know, do you think there's going to be pushback on that? What do you think it might look like? So I think discussions, um, and this we're into the realms of speculative speculation here. This you know I love some speculation, John. Well, I hate that. In which case, bring it on. <laughs> um, I think, you know, one way it's been put to me is it's about exploring other ways of making it more more affordable, more organisations to buy systems like Epic. It is, um, it is the kind of Rolls-Royce of kind of um, EMR systems and, and priced accordingly. Um, 
worth remembering that, that those costs split roughly about a third to the um, software supplier, then about a third in infrastructure upgrades you've got to do, and then about a third in implementation. So even if you did do um, a you know, volume national deal with kind of Epic for the software, that doesn't change the fact that their model was still based on you spending flipping great wages of money on um, the infrastructure and implementation as well. Yeah? The reason why Epic is so expensive, but also why it has a reputation for being um, successful is because um, it, it does have very high kind of um, um, demands that are, are met require for a warranted environment is the terminology that you implemented into. And if you don't meet that, you basically void your warranty. Mm. So in layman's terms, not for me, obviously, I definitely understand what you've just said, <laughs> but in layman's terms, what does that mean? So what it means is even if you could kind of like get a discount on the software, you can't reduce the costs of the infrastructure and implementation stuff that goes with it. Yeah. So I think, you know, there, there might be some scope for, you know, margin of the area. If we bought 10 of these instead of one at a time, could we negotiate a bit of a deal? That might have some kind of um, potential, but um, I think the idea of kind of, you know, buying this wall to wall across the whole country is pretty fanciful. And I, I, I don't think there's either enough money or an appetite for a wholesale rip and replace. But, you know, in, in the current market, if you're a CIO at a, at a trust and um, you've got a, a rag tag of stuff that you want to replace and um, Epic looks like the best kind of um, show in town at the moment. And, you know, trust that kind of put it in, um, do reasonably well. Um, Serta trust do reasonably well as well. And uh, there are other kind of EPRs out there. But, you know, a bit like the old adage that you didn't get sacked for buying IBM back in the day. Um, People don't, well, people don't anymore seem to get sacked for buying Epic. Yeah, I mean, Cambridge, as you mentioned, was first to go live. Well, they're, they're, they're everybody got sacked. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Cambridge have just been accredited by NHSX as a GDE. They've completed the whole GDE program. And a lot of that started from when they implemented Epic and started going digital. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not selling Epic, <laughs> but that does sound like a slight success story. Um, yeah, they, were, they weren't the first. There wasn't it. Um, mm. The truck up in the northeast, where I think was the first one to kind of I d- get. That I don't know. Thing. I'll put my yeah. hands up and say I don't actually know that one. Northeast, I think. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Northeast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You were all scripts, I think, from memory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I think I I kind of look at it. I, I kind of don't look at. Obviously, for for balance issues, I would look at it as um, what would a national procurement mean and. And kind of just going right, I don't think it's a very good idea. I don't think it's the right time. Uh, we're just coming out of a pandemic, so I I, I doubt there's going to be enough money um, to kind of to see this through. But I think in terms of when you're looking at a national procurement, I think it really stifles innovation. Um, I've been speaking to um, a couple of kind of CIOs and, and people that are, have basically their current products are no longer available from kind of bigger uh, companies and so they're having to innovate with old like young like SME sorry um to to look for new solutions to problems that they've got because their product is no longer available and I think that's a really good sort of uh, market and atmos- not atmosphere so to speak but like the market to have one way you've got SMEs coming through who can help you with new solutions and you're not reliant on one company to do everything for you because I think that's where you get locked in and and we've had many discussions about the issues come with that so for me personally I don't think having a national procurement is is a great idea at the moment but I do see the 
the lure of epic um there's a lot that goes into it like you said they have floor walkers they ha- they train everyone up they they go you know with the go lives when i spoke to the team at uclh um it was really really precise and this is our plan and this is what we're doing we've got people on the ground who are helping us and and so on and so forth but as you both said it it's it's very very expensive so i think in terms of when i look at it as wouldn't you know what would a national procurement mean i think it could probably mean a lot of headaches for a lot of people um and like you were saying andrew what if you're already locked into to a 10-year contract a lot of trusts have been signing kind of 10-year deals um with various other companies so i think it would be a massive headache um one that i'm glad i won't have to deal with if it happens <laughs> um but i can i owe sympathies for those who kind of are facing those things anyway so for me i don't think it's the best time but who am i to judge and who am i to have any say in it because it's not down to me <laughs> I, I think take a step back we're kind of you know um 18 months on from the start of the um, pandemic and you know the um the the key kind of things which have kind of um, you know been moved by the NHS at a national level to respond to the pandemic, test and trace, the um, vaccination kind of um, system, are things that have been kind of moved nationally. We've also seen um, things um, like attend anywhere that were kind of put in very quickly, wall to wall or teams. So I think if if there if you were to characterise um, you know what perhaps are some of the lessons that have been drawn by the Department of Health um, or NHS England, is that large-scale national projects can succeed. And I think that's the mood that these kind of rumours kind of um, gives them a bit of currency. Um, Now, I think it's very different to kind of do something which is almost entirely greenfield, like um, the test and trace system, particularly if you spend as much money on test and trace as as has been um, and continues to be spent. to the very complex brownfield sort of reality, which is kind of most um, hospitals. And um, I don't think there's enough money in the system. I also think that the, the Epic and any of those kind of um, mega suites a bit like a chimera. So, you know, the, the promise is always kind of a, a bit illusory because whilst it works well within the walls of one organization, well, one kind of hospital provider, it's never going to reach every kind of system that that, that kind of organization uses. And it, it you still have to deal with the messy world outside, um, you know, the hospital car park. And it, it seems to me like to fly completely counter to the whole direction of travel and the long-term plan and the health and care bill, um, which is towards integrated care systems, integration of health and social care. And it just seems a bit out of step with times that, that trusts are making these types of very big investments, particularly in Epic, um, when what they're meant to be doing is is not focusing on single organization digitization, but instead about looking at the wider system. Yeah. And I think the one thing that we've both, well, we've all kind of mentioned is the cost. There's a lot of money involved here. Um, huge amounts of money, actually, money that I don't necessarily think the NHS has. Um, John, I know that you did some figures for us. I'm not going to try and repeat them because numbers are not my forte, but (laughs) maybe you could run through some of the figures you had in the feature just to talk about, you know, if this was to go ahead and, you know, based on what it has previously cost trust, what kind of figures are the NHS looking at here? Um, So, okay. So how much does an electronic patient record system cost for um, an NHS kind of um, hospital trust um, 
is not actually a very straightforward answer. Um, the the kind of like range um, is often kind of um, said to be somewhere between 100 million top end, um, epic, 20 million um, for something um, which um, is a little less kind of, um, you know, um, bit less of a kind of um, high end system. Um, they share a lot of kind of similarities in what, what they do. Um, so Cambridge, um, they were the first. Um, they had published figures that their kind of um, e-hospital program was 200 million. Um, awful lot of that was on infrastructure. So that's um, 200 million for them. And that was um, going back um, a number of years. Um, guys in St. Thomas's, we've reported um, the EPIC project is significantly in excess of 175 million. Um, Manchester University hospitals currently have a a budget of 181 million. Northern Ireland, which is you know pretty small, has a budget of 275 million, um, thanks to kind of a big Brexit bum that um, Northern Ireland got. Um, and you know even a, a kind of smaller, very respectable but smaller trust, um, Frimley Health, um, has a budget of 108 million for its um, Epic project. So these are huge sums of money. I mean, in most of those organisations, this is the single biggest. Um, expenditure, um, they'll have um, capital expenditure um, other than the buildings. Um, and um, they're also very long-term projects. I mean, you know, these projects are typically for kind of 10 years, but most of these organizations that kind of are putting kind of Epic in will be running it in 30 years time. Um, you know, one of, one of the suppliers um, boasts is that it never loses a customer. So it, it's a bit of a one-way kind of um, um, door. Once you once you enter that universe, you're so heavily invested in it that it's very very difficult to ever kind of leave. So anyway, if you took an average of, of kind of what the costs are, um, ninety million, say that might be kind of um, low volume per trust, hundred acute trust maybe that you had to kind of um, um, kind of um, cover, um, nine billion, say another billion for contingency. We said we reckon ten billion. And that's probably undercooking it. So that would do um, 100 trusts. Um, but that really is my kind of um, incredibly speculative, um, don't bet your kind of, uh, yourself on it um, figure. <laughs> so just a little bit of money then, nothing too big, just billions and billions. <laughs> um, so the third part of this that I think is really important to focus on, and Hannah, you've already touched on this, is innovation. Um, because obviously NHSX is tasked with, you know, driving forward digitization and innovation sorry in the nhs um but also this if this happens does ring slightly similar to the national program for it which we did blacklist on this podcast for a while it became a triggering discussion <laughs> but i'm going to bring it back in because it does to me seem very similar to the national program which also to me means that we haven't necessarily learned the right lessons from the national program um so I wanted to talk to you guys about whether or not this does, you know, encourage innovation or if this is actually risking history repeating itself, you know, 10 years on. Um, John, you might actually also be the best person to ask of this as well, because you were around for the National Programme for IT and Hannah and I weren't. So, we, I mean, we were around, we just weren't reporting on digital health. So you might have more to say here. Um, is that a way of saying, John, you're really old? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, your words again, John, your words. Um, <laughs> The I think I, I look. I, I read this in a, a slightly different way. Health, health, IT, digitization of the um, NHS. Um, we've seen phenomenal kind of um, 
achievements during during the pandemic, um, you know, particularly with the shifts to kind of remote care and, and remote working, um, phenomenal, just amazing. But to do the the kind of deeper um, under the skin digital transformation of health, um, that kind of you know really thinking carefully about how you reinvent your processes, how you standardize procedures, how you change kind of um, ways of working. Um, that that remains hard and frustratingly kind of um, slow. And I think um, many politicians and, and kind of um, many kind of leaders of the health service understandably kind of find that extremely frustrating and, and look for kind of um, shortcuts or, or ways of kind of um, leapfrogging um, all of that kind of messy, um, difficult kind of work that has to be done. I think that that was one of the central messages of the WACDA review four or five years back. Um, and that there is some um, some kind of speculation about kind of some sort of um, national deal with Epic of, of whatever the kind. I kind of put into that into that sort of um, context, yeah, that people are looking for silver bullets that are going to somehow make this all easier. And, and I think most of the benefits of digitization of, of providers in particular um, has to be done the hard way, um, organization by organization. And, and the big big, big, big lesson of the national program is um, you can't wave a magic wand, even with kind of like lots of money from the center and somehow bypass all the hard work you've got to do locally. And um, I think that that's that's the lesson that I just encourage people to kind of remember. It, you know, it, it is frustrating at times, but, um, but the benefits only come if you do those hard yards. And I also agree with what you said earlier, Hannah, about sometimes working with smaller companies and SMEs actually encourages a little bit more innovation because I think they're a bit more flexible in the terms of in the products that they're able to provide you because they actually really they really need a place in the market so they're prepared to be a bit more flexible and, and work with you whereas I think Epic they're very established and they know what they're selling and they're good at what they're selling but I don't know if that means that they're less likely to be as flexible on the ground with their products I mean Hannah you said you've spoken to people about this mm, I mean I don't know whether it's about being flexible, but I think it goes back to the whole uh, argument. And I think it probably links back to the silver bullet. There's no one size fits all. Um, I think so many trusts are different. They probably want maybe want different things from their EPR. And don't forget, there's lots of different things that the EPR will feed into. There's all there's so many different systems that, you know, the clinicians have to use on a daily basis. So I think EPR is just, you know, one of, one of many. But I think... When it comes to nationalizing things, you know, you're just assuming that everyone's got the same, they want the same thing. And so when I've been speaking to people, they were like, oh, you know, but we we particularly need this. And so that's why we went to, you know, company X and they helped us develop this. And sometimes it's developed in-house. And I think sometimes it's it's easy to say, you know, you need this EPR, um, it's going to change your life. Um, but for someone who isn't maybe somewhere like North Tees, it might be completely different to what's going on in Cambridge. They're both GDs. They're both probably, they've got probably got exceptional digitization, but may, you know, they, they might want different things. You don't, I think it's sometimes wrong to assume that, that trusts want the same thing from, from their technology. So I think it all comes back to this argument about, and again, like I was saying with the silver bullet, um, what John was saying, um, sometimes it's not a one size fits all. And I think you have to take that into consideration. And that's where I think SMEs and, and startups can come in and, 
and help sort of and also help innovate the market and move it along and update it and and things like that but like I said that's just that's just my opinion (laughs) (laughs) no I would I would tend to agree with that too I think that makes a lot of sense um but I just I do want to also focus on other parts of the EPR market now because we've made it sound like it's all epic and it's not all epic um we have actually spoken about the EPR market on the podcast previously, which I thought was recent, but when I actually went back through it, it was September last year. So it's been a little while. Um, So Hannah, I thought I might ask you for an update on what we've actually been writing about on the new side of things with where there's been some go lives on EPRs. Yeah. So yes, it's easy to kind of think of the big three. So not big three, um, but the big ones like the likes of Epic, you've got Cerner, like the Royal Freeze just rolled out their second phase of of their Cerner EPR. You have the likes of all scripts who have had some go lives and contract signs, but then um, what's been interesting is, um, so the, the Christie NHS foundation trust have recently uh, sort of signed a contract with better to create a digital health platform. That's going to support, modernization of its electronic health records so it's interesting to see companies like better being brought in to to help uh, facilitate more of an open open ehr approach which i think is you know it's a good way to go i think for me interoperability and, and ensuring that things can interact with each other is the better way to go because then if you do have all these systems in place if they can interact with each other it just makes people's lives a bit easier so the you know it, it's easy to kind of focus on epic because they you know they're getting the big bucks and they they, they steal the headlines with these kind of multi-million pound contracts but you know Cerner have been quietly sort of you know well not quietly um but they've been kind of borrowing away with some deals um, and like I said, with better all scripts, you've got System C as well. Who System C kind of not only do sort of um, EPR, they've they've done a lot with shared care records. You know, the, the great Greater Manchester Care record went live what, a year ago, and and that's kind of really hit the ground running. So, you know, there's so many different players in this market, and I think um, while it's easy to focus on the ones where their their mega money sort of contracts are, you know, there there are still other players in the market and you know they're just they're doing doing just a uh, not just a good job but they they're doing the same thing and I think it's 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 easy to well it's easy to focus on epic like I said is my round way of saying things but there are other trusts it's sometimes it's just so hard to keep up with them all there's so many contract go lives and there's just so much to do but there is a lot of deals being done basically. (laughs) Yeah, an awful lot of deals being done. I feel like recently there was a bit of a lull during the pandemic, wasn't there? And in the Mm. last sort of six months, there's just been so many go lives and contract notifications. So it obviously looks like the industry is picking up a bit there, which Mm. is good. Um, But John, I'm sure you've got something to add on to this. Um, I think two things. I think the the, there is a lot of kind of activity happening in the market. I think there was some pent up stuff that got held over during kind of um, the peak of the pandemic, which um, definitely forward. Um, to the list that kind of Hannah was mentioning, we're saying that um, Deadless has been doing some interesting um, stuff with EPMA. We're beginning to see some go lives um, from some of their kind of um, sites. So yeah, it, I mean, it is partly trade media kind of focusing on the kind of um, on the kind of big names that sometimes kind of leave skewed news. But I think the better one is an interesting one. So better and Christie, Christie, a lot of homegrown stuff that they had. Um, Obviously, they're a specialist tertiary um, provider, um, but I think it, it's beginning to kind of just kind of have a a bit more interest in in open platforms again. So, open platforms yeah. was something that was getting pushed about four or five years ago. 
briefly had a, a, a lick of money from the center. Um, and I think the reason why open platforms um, are so important is that people decry having um, you know, a, a limited choice of kind of um, providers in the market um, and say, well, you know, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to change that? Um, and it's entirely rational to buy from those suppliers that are kind of are leaving the market at the moment because those are the ones that you're most likely to get the best results from. Yeah? Um, but if you want to change that market and if you want to kind of um, begin to get to a world where you're not so tightly um, tied to suppliers um, of particular kind of um, clinical software, if you want to begin to achieve some of that ambition that Matt Hancock was beginning to articulate um, before he bombed out as um, Secretary of State for Health about separating their later, later data from applications, you've actually got to invest in it. And, I, and that includes national bodies as well as trust. Yeah? Now, better is simply a, a, a kind of flag carrier for that. Um, but that idea about kind of actually beginning to move um, on, on kind of um, EPR 2.0, about separating kind of data from the application kind of um, level, isn't going to happen by people just occasionally kind of bemoaning the lack of kind of choice in the market. Yeah? It requires some significant investments year on year. I mean, just think about those numbers we were talking about earlier on about kind of, you know, the cost of a single epic deployment. Call it 100 million for the sake of argument. Yeah? If we spend a tenth of that per year on um, open platforms, um, we might see some change. But, you know, we, we kind of had a very short term interest in it um, a few years back, and it's pretty much kind of died a death. Yeah. Um, if, if NHS X, NHS England want a different kind of market, they have to invest in the things that are actually going to change that market. Yeah? And then the last thing I'll offer, which um, is, is inspired because I'm currently looking at buying a new car. Um, and I don't think cars are that different. Fundamentally, they, they are very, very similar. Yeah? And so I, I, I buy German cars usually. and um, the current, you can essentially buy the same model cars ranging from an Audi um, top of the range and spend just silly money all the way through to Volkswagen, um, Skoda and Seat. And um, they are basically the same cars. Yeah? And I think the secret about the EPR market is it's not that dissimilar on the core kind of functionalities yeah. um, that you have. Why does someone buy an Epic um, is a bit like why does someone buy an Audi? Because they want to have some feeling that they are special and different um, when most people are probably okay with a Volkswagen or a Skoda. Yeah. Yeah, been a lot of car chat in this. It was Rolls Royce earlier. Now it's Audi. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got cars in my mind. <laughs> are you Are you trying to tell us you're about to buy an Audi, John? Is that what's happening? No, I don't think so. I can't bring myself to spend that sort of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a fancy car, but <laughs> um, but that actually does bring me to my very the last question I wanted to ask you guys. I think quite nicely is I just wanted to focus on where you think the future of the EPR market is heading. I think we've both we've all kind of touched on that a little bit, uh, especially. John with the discussion around open platforms so uh, yeah I'll just throw the question out to both of you where do you think the future is going so, so to just kind of 
kind of followed the logic of what I was saying. I think we are heading to a point where there will be even further consolidation um, in the market. Um, so you'll have a handful of kind of um, top end players, some smaller kind of um, companies um, cater with mid tier. Mid tier is probably going to be a tougher bit um, of the market. Um, but you, you get quite quickly to a point where you know, it, it is an oligopoly and that those are unhelpful uh, markets um, because incentives to innovate, to drive down kind of um, prices are largely kind of um, removed. So I think we'll see further concentration because at the minute I don't see any serious investment in kind of um, in, um, in, in levers that will change the market. Yeah? So in particular, I think open platforms is, is where um, that needs to happen. But, you know, markets have a tendency of operating in cycles and, and you know, governments do sometimes um, break up monopolies if they see that as kind of being kind of um, detrimental to, um, to national interest um, or citizens. But I think we're a long way short from that now. Yeah? I think that the, the direction of travel is to separate data from the application um, level to have a more common kind of um, platform um, and that, that sort of common platform, I don't see any reason at all where, why that shouldn't be owned by the NHS. And then the value and the innovation piece can happen in the application layer um, and, the, um, and the knowledge base that sits on top of that. Yeah, I mean, if I knew the answer, I'd probably be paid a lot of money and I'd be very rich. <laughs> so I don't feel, I don't think I feel You'd quite qualified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish. Um, I don't feel qualified enough to, to kind of give an answer, but I do think, um, I agree with John in some aspects. I do think, I, I always go back to, I think when you say things like EPR 2, 2.0, I think there's definitely like a cyc- uh, cyclical or cyclical. It's coming around in a circle. We're going like full circle. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> I'm basically trying to sound fancy and not succeeding. Um, I think we're going full cycle with the APR. And now people are kind of looking to procure the next kind of generation, um, which is why I think there's lots of kind of flurry of activity at the moment. And I think uh, John's right. I think there's got, I think looking at things like open platforms and this separation of the data layer because it got a lot of, it got so much buzz when Hancock was talking about it at Rewired for many many people are getting very excited about it um so I hope that kind of continues um with our new uh, secretary of, secretary of state sorry for health um but I do think if you can kind of separate those layers and then I think it not only adds a bit of security for the data because you know the data is safely stored in one place. You can then, like John said, you can have the innovators come in and they can do all their bits and bobs with the application. I've made it sound very, very easy, but of course it's not. Um, so I think I see that we're going. I think you raised a really interesting point, John, about there'll be different tiers for different trusts. And of course, I think it's really easy to focus on acute trusts, but you also have community trusts, you have mental health trusts, and you have um, ambulance trusts as well. Um, and may not necessarily sort of need an EPR, but you know they'll definitely be needing to like feed into it or get gain access to it. So I think having these different layers, all these applications where you know different parts of the the hospital, the trust, or or the area even can access it, I do think is it seems to me like a more sensible way to go forward and. I think also this whole idea about vendor lock-in, um, which sounds really scary when you say it, because you do like realize they, some of these people, some of these trusts, sorry, are signing very, very long-term contracts, and you don't know what's going to happen kind of 
within those 10 years or so. And so I think maybe being a bit more flexible around kind of contract lengths and, and things like that. But I do think, uh, I think there just needs to be a bit more flexibility around the EPR would be probably my key maybe prediction. Yeah, I mean, to, to kind of um, just just expand on that slightly, I mean, I think we have problems in the EPR market um, outside of hospitals as well. I mean, in primary care, you've had a duopoly for quite a long time. I know there are a couple of others, but essentially that market's divided between EMIS and TPP. Um, mental health, you speak to a lot of kind of mental health kind of um, leaders, and they are pretty frustrated about the lack of innovation in that market. There's, um, you know, um, a handful of kind of... Um, incumbent kind of um, players. Um, I suspected that the real action, the real change, because that's where, where the kind of um, change is happening kind of um, policy-wise, is on um, integrated care records spanning health and social care. And we're beginning to see more of, um, on that. We've seen System C on the graph that kind of make a lot of kind of headway in that space. And um, my prediction would be is that we won't see a lot of change coming from the hospital market or the primary care market or mental health. But in that realm, which is now kind of, um, um, you know, being given the kind of um, responsibility of, by ICSs, about having rich integrated records um, spanning health and social care. I think that that's the space to watch. You know? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that's probably a really good place to end the podcast because I think we've covered quite a lot of things and uh, we are running out of time on this episode. Um, I didn't mention this at the beginning of the podcast because I knew it would make me a bit sad, but this is actually my final episode of Digital Health Unplugged. I am leaving Digital Health at the end of the month for a new role. So unfortunately, that means I'm also leaving the podcast behind. I did just want to take a moment to say a huge, huge thank you to everyone who has been involved in the podcast and listened to it over the last two years. When I started the podcast in 2019, I never imagined how much interest and engagement it would get. And it has honestly been one of the funnest things I've ever been a part of. And I absolutely could not have done it without the support of all of our listeners. I've had some really incredible guests on the show and covered some really interesting topics. And I'm just so proud of every episode we put out and that I managed to get them out on time every time, even during a pandemic, which at that times was a bit of a feat. Um, so please do keep in touch with the news team if you've got any suggestions for the podcast. And if you want to keep in touch with me, please do give me a follow on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm not leaving health, so I would love to keep in contact. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been my final episode and it was a nice time to do it with John and Hannah. Oh, well, you'll be very much missed, um, Andrea. And um, nursing standards um, gain is very much um, our loss, um, but staying within health. So that's, um, I'm expecting nursing standards to suddenly get very interested in all things digital. Best of luck. <laughs> I am hoping to take the tech angle with me and maybe I will uh, attend some of our events, but as uh, press from an opposition next time. So I'll be there keeping an eye on what's going on in digital health anyway. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, that, that, must, that must be about time for my final sign-off of the podcast. Hannah and John, thank you so much for joining me on my last episode of Digital Health Unplugged. There was just no better way to end it for me. And of course, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Please don't forget you can follow Digital Health Unplugged on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the usual podcast channels to keep up to date with what we're doing and to listen to all of our previous episodes. And if you've got a podcast suggestion, we are really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We will catch you later. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about Digital Health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net.